0: These are the words of Jesus. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you that you have gathered us, your children, and that here we get to listen in to the conversation that our Lord had with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And, and Lord, uh, we, these many years later, are his disciples as well. And uh, we long for these words to speak into our minds, our hearts, our lives, our emotions, um, and that they would impact us, they would shape us, uh, they would challenge us, they would comfort us. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you and we pray that by the power and in, in insight and wisdom of your Holy Spirit, we uh, might uh, um, uh, behold our Savior as we read his words and study them together now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are are looking at a a topic that I I think is one of the deepest questions that affects so many of our lives of how does sorrow, sadness, turn into joy? And uh, I'm reluctant to... uh, Talk about such a challenging subject. Uh, if any of you have struggled with depression, uh, you know that when someone says that they have answers for depression, sometimes it's like rubbing a wound, it makes it just even worse. Actually, there's a proverb that puts it this way Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. So, speaking joy into sadness can make the sorrow or depression worse. And so there are dangers in speaking about you know, sorrow and depression. You can trivialize it. There are also dangers in not speaking about it because then we don't know. that if We think, well, maybe that's all there is, is sorrow and depression, especially if it really plagues our life. And so my hope today, what I want to talk about today is I hope, hopefully more descriptive than prescriptive. And what I mean is I want to describe uh, the experience, the path, the journey of, of what you're going to face in a journey of sorrow. And instead of prescribe, here's a remedy for how it's going to get taken away. So I'm not, I don't have necessarily a technique to take away uh, sorrows. Um, but uh, to say, you know, sadness is a path that all of us to varying degrees have to walk. What does that path look like? And what's the destination look like? What's the destination? Where are you going to on that path? What's the aim of it? And so in order to do that, I want to just uh, look at this passage and answer two simple questions for us. What do you need to know about sorrow? And what do you need to know about joy? What do you need to know about sorrow and what do you need to know about joy? And uh, before before I launch into those two questions, I want to make one interpretive observation from this passage. You'll notice those words I just read in verse 22. Verse 22. Says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus says, You're going to have sorrow now. But then you're going to see me again, and then you, won't, you aren't going to have sorrow. Well, what's he talking about then? When's the now? When's the later? Well, there's different ways to interpret it. And historically, Christians have said there's kind of a double meaning here. On the one hand, the disciples, this is the night before Jesus is crucified. So he's going to be crucified. He's going to be dead and buried for three days. So they're going to be sorrowful now. And then he'll be raised from the dead, and they'll see him, and they'll have joy. But also, Jesus is then going to ascend into heaven and so he'll be gone and they won't see him and then he's going to come again at the end of the age and they will see him. So in some ways, the the sorrow is the whole age of the Christian life. And it's our whole Christian life. It's all of Christian history is the age of sorrow. And then eventually we'll see him again. So I think it's talking about those, that weekend when Jesus is going to die and be raised from the dead. I think it talks about the Christian life is both sorrow and joy. And then it's all of Christian history is kind of a sorrow and joy pattern. So I think all of those are appropriate ways to be thinking about this passage. We'll kind of interact with all those as we go along. So two questions for us today. What do you need to know about sorrow? And what do you need to know about joy? And I want to just highlight things from this passage. And so the first question is this. What do you need to know about sorrow? Three things that this passage points out for us. So first is, sorrow is for a little while. Sorrow is for a little while. And that phrase, little while, is repeated several times in this passage. You look at verse 16. It says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says, a little while, and you will not see me? Again, a little while, and you will see me. And so the disciples, even themselves, aren't really clear about what's the little while applying to. And, uh, but I've been meditating on that phrase a little while over the last, really, couple months. And even in my own Bible reading, I've been seeing it popping up. So, for example... In Hebrews 10.36, this is what it says in Hebrews. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet, a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So there's a little while in Hebrews. And then the next book after Hebrews is James. I was reading in James. James 4.14 says this. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes there's a little time so your whole life is again just a little while it's a little time and then the next book after james is first 1 peter first 1 peter 1:6 says this in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials It says all the trials we experience in this life they're for a little while over and over again the bible and jesus says that sorrow, suffering, the trials that we experience in this, in this life, and our life as a whole, is just for a little while. And I, I personally find great comfort in thinking about my life is, I'm I'm just a little while, and then I'm gonna die, and I'm gonna be with Jesus. Actually, just a couple of weeks ago, my sister-in-law, it was her birthday, and my family was on the phone with her, and she turned 46, and she was talking about, oh, I'm in the second half of my 40s, and and I was just like, it's all right. We're just going to be here a little while, and then we'll be dead. And then we'll be with Jesus. And she's like, wow, that was a happy birthday thought for me. You know, that you're just going to die soon. And, uh, you know, I think ever my dad, ever since he passed away two years ago, I think that's going to be me soon. I'm going to be dead soon. And you might think that's so morbid that we're just this life is just a little thing, and then we're going to die. And But I find comfort because it means, you know, a little while, I can endure for a little while. I can persevere <laughs> for a little while. If that's all it is, I think maybe that I can do it. And uh, even if you have much sadness in this life, compared to the imper- in- inheritance we have in Christ, it is just a little while. We'll look back on it as a little while. All of the trials that we have, have put behind us, we look back on and say, you know, it was really hard, but it, w- it, was, it was a little while and you could, you could walk through it. And uh, one of the things about suffering and sadness or depression is that it often feels like it is never going to go away. I mean, it feels like an eternity in the midst of it. And that's why we need Jesus' word to tell us it's a little while, because that's not what it feels like on the inside. And it is not true that it it will never go away. It is for a time. It is for a time that is appointed by God. And C.S. Lewis makes a, a similar point about sexual temptation, He says that it's important, one of the things you have to know about sexual temptation is that sexual temptation is a form of suffering and that it will go away and we think when we're in it that the only way that the suffering of sexual temptation goes away is by indulging it and that's how you get rid of it. No, it's not. You wait until God relieves it and and lets it go away and in fact all of life is exactly that way is that we don't indulge the sin in the midst of it. We wait for God to give relief at the end of the little time. So what's the first thing you need to know about sorrow? It's for a little while. Second, sorrow comes from disconnection. Sorrow comes from disconnection. And you see what Jesus says in verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. uh, So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. And so Jesus says the source of sorrow is personal disconnection from Him. Uh, You know, these disciples have been walking with him. They've been living with him. They've been spending their life with him. And he says, this is going to be a real sorrow that his physical presence is gone. And, of course, you know, we've experienced that this past year in tremendous ways. And, you know, what's the physical presence of Jesus now in our day? It's the body of Christ. It's the church. And, you know, the isolation that our whole culture has experienced. You know, there's huge increases in depression, even suicide. And... uh, and if you are experiencing sorrow, this is why. Sorrow comes from disconnection. And there's a, a really fascinating book that I read a couple years ago called Lost Connections. And it's a book about depression. And, uh, and the main thesis of the book is that depression is pain. And the, we experience pain in our lives when things that are supposed to be connected get ripped apart or torn apart you know you think of your arm you cut your arm it's flesh that's supposed to be connected gets ripped apart and you feel pain and it's your body telling you something is wrong and there's something that there's a wound that needs to be attended to there's something that's been ripped apart that needs to be cared for and uh and Johan Hari who's the author of that he argues that this is what depression is is that some connection in your life has been torn and needs attention and uh, he lists all kinds of disconnections that you can have. You know, disconnection from community, important people in your life, or you know, intimacy with people, or, or disconnection from meaningful work. If you feel ripped apart from meaningful work, or if you, um, if if you're doing things that go against your value system, and you feel disconnected from your deepest values, or. Or like childhood traumas that you haven't faced and you feel ripped apart from your childhood. Or even future hopes. If you, you know, if you don't have hope for the future and you're ripped apart, that's a fundamental part of being human. These are all disconnections. And of course, the Christian understanding of the world is that the deepest source of suffering and misery is that humanity is disconnected from God, from our Creator. And that Jesus, the whole reason that Jesus came was to reconcile all things in heaven and earth. He was, you know, reestablishing the connection of all things that were supposed to be joined together. And uh, one of the things that I appreciate about that book, Lost Connections, is I think it takes away some of the moral component that we often attach to sadness or sorrow or depression. Is we feel guilty for, you know, feeling sad or, or down or Uh, you know, melancholy and, you know, but you wouldn't feel guilty because you had a gash in your arm and it hurts. You wouldn't say, well, I feel guilty because I'm feeling pain. No, it's it's not a moral thing to feel pain. Pain is just telling you something needs attention. Now, it is true that there are sins that could make your pain worse. And if we, you know, indulge sins, often then we feel more shame and it compounds the pain and we feel more disconnection because what sin is, sin is trying to give a temporary relief to something that we're, that, uh, sorrow that, uh, you know, pain that we're walking through. So sin gives you temporary relief, but long-term pain. And the healing that God gives is we wait for him to heal and reestablish connections and for Jesus to reestablish connections. And so what these first two points about sorrow teach us, that sorrow is for a little while. It's a length of time that we can walk through and, and that it comes from disconnection. Is a calling to not respond to sorrow with sin, and uh, you know the Christian life in many ways is is waiting for God to heal our pain that's what the Christian life in many ways is we're waiting for God to ultimately come and heal all of our pains and uh, and when we do that, when we have a posture of waiting for God to work, a third thing happens this is the third truth about Sorrow is that sorrow gives birth to new life. Sorrow gives birth to new life. And you see what Jesus says in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So sorrow is like the pain of giving birth. It's, you know, it's a pathway to how new life shows up in the world. And, you know, I've thought about how, you know, there are many women who, when they're getting ready to have their baby, they decide, you know, I don't want to have an epidural or I don't want to have any pain meds. I want to feel the pain of the whole experience. Why do they do that? Is because they understand that that pain that they're going to experience is so charged with meaning. It's one of the most profound things that will happen in their life. And that they understand that this pain is not a wasted pain. It's a pain that is giving life to another human being. And in many ways, Christians throughout history have viewed suffering and trials and sorrows in this life exactly that way. They've welcomed it like a mother who's saying, I'm going to, you know, experience the pain of giving birth. And um, J.I. Packer uh, puts it this way, that they've learned to bow to God's providence, that whatever pain is necessary for his work in their lives, they will welcome it. And if you are in Christ, sorrow and suffering are the means that God uses to give birth to new life, both to you and to others. And so a huge question for us is, are we willing to receive that? Are we willing to accept that? Will we we bow to God's providence, say, whatever you bring into my life, I trust you that you are good, and I will receive that good. I believe you. And so as we think about sorrow and suffering and depression, can I give you a recipe for taking it away? No. No. But do not try to walk the path of sorrow without knowing these things. That the Bible describes it as for a little while. That it comes from disconnection. That there's all kinds of disconnections, ultimately from God, from the pre- physical presence of Jesus, but also his people. And we're not going to, you know, f- experience that full connection until finally we're with him. And that, but ultimately that sorrow is what gives birth to new life. It is a part of the path that he has for every Christian. And so when we think about that new life, though, that raises a second question. Okay, well, what do we need to know about sorrow? Those are the things we need to know about sorrow. Well, what do we need to know about joy? What does this passage teach us about joy? And again, three things that I want to highlight from this passage. Three things about what do you need to know about joy. First, joy looks outside itself. Joy looks outside itself. And you see there in verse 16 where Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. Jesus says, you're going to see me with your eyes. And the posture of the Christian is with his or her eyes open, watching for God, watching his world, watching for other people. And many of you know how one of the hardest things about depression is how much it turns this Inward on ourselves, and we, you know, we have a pretty inwardly turned culture as well as a pretty therapeutic culture where there's a lot of introspection. Also, we're increasingly uh, influenced by Eastern spirituality, which is very inwardly focused. And uh, G.K. Chesterton um, talks about this in his book Orthodoxy, where he sees this as one of the fundamental differences between Buddhism and Christianity. And this is what Chesterton says. Says, even when I thought that Buddhism and Christianity were alike, there was one thing about them that always perplexed me. I mean the startling difference in their type of religious art. The Buddhist saint always has his eyes shut, while the Christian saint always has them very wide open. The Buddhist saint has a sleek and harmonious body, but his eyes are heavy and sealed with sleep. The medieval saint's body is wasted to its crazy bones, but his eyes are frightfully alive. The Buddhist is looking with a peculiar intentness inwards. The Christian is staring with a frantic intentness outwards. This is the meaning of that almost insane happiness in the eyes of the medieval saint in the picture. The Christian saint is happy, Because he has verily been cut off from the world. He is separate from things and is staring at them in astonishment. I just love those phrases. The frantic intentness outward and almost insane happiness. And the thing about Eastern spirituality is Eastern spirituality says that everything is one and everything is God. And so if you want to see God, look inside of yourself. And the Bible tells us that you and God are definitely not the same person. It's amazing that God created an other. In fact, many others. A whole world filled with others. And what's amazing that you see in this passage in verse 16 is that Jesus says, again a little while and you will see me. But then you go down to verse 22. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you. And it's not just that our eyes are open looking at God, the other. His eyes are open beholding us as an other. And we're seeing each other. You know, I picture it like two people falling in love, you know, whose eyes they see each other. And you know the mystery of the other, you know, that you can't control them. You don't know, will they accept you? Will they reject you? There's so much risk. And yet you behold one another. And that joy of romance, of falling in love, is just a small taste. Of the profound truth that God is a mysterious other. And with our wild eyes open and his wild eyes open, we behold each other astonished. And that is Christian joy. Is that joy looks outward. Now, I want to add to that that Christianity, of course, does have a place for looking inward. You know, every week we come here and confess our sins. And, you know, that's why we believe in counseling. There's a time for looking inward. You know, St. Augustine was the first to really record his life story and think about how that had shaped who he was as a person. And so that's a good thing to do. What I'm talking about, though, is the joy. We do that inward work in order to move on from it to behold God and behold others and to see others. And so we confess our sins so that we can be freed from our sins and then behold God and hear his word and come to his table and serve and love our neighbors. So joy looks outside itself. Now some of you would say, yeah, I want that. I, I see how I'm turned in on myself. And, you know, how does, what does it mean to turn outside and behold, look outward from myself? Well, that's a second thing about joy from this passage is that joy looks for God through prayer. And when joy has its eyes open, I think it doesn't only look for Jesus coming when he's going to come again, but also joy looks for where is Jesus present in my everyday life. And you see that there in verse 24, where it says, until now, Jesus says, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full joy in asking, you know, bringing everything, all of our sorrows, every anxiety, every hardship, bringing it to God, you will begin to see him answer prayers. And that will be a source of joy. You know, my family was just talking about this this week. We have a a thing we do at our, some of you do this at your dinner table, where we'll go around and say, what are your highs and lows from the day? And everyone talks about their highs and lows from the day. And my wife was saying, she was listening to a podcast about a family that their question is, where did you see God today? I thought that's such a great question. Like it's first expects God was present today. Where was he? Did you see him? We just went through our life and we, our eyes were not open and to pause and to say, where did, we see, where did I see God today? Joy feels like God is at work in the midst of the hardships of life and is experiencing him. And so joy looks outward and experiences God through prayer. Prayer is the way that, that trains us to open our eyes to see where God is working. The third important thing about joy is this, that joy also looks to the future. A huge part of Christian joy, the the kind of foundation of Christian joy, is that there is a tremendous hope for the future that is awaiting us. And, And, you know, to think about those words again in verse 21, where Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus brings this metaphor of a mother giving birth to a child, and you say, well, what's the metaphor here? Like, what's the baby that's being born? And, uh, well, there's a couple answers you find in other places in the Bible. For example, Colossians 1 says that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was like this new life that was born into the world. He's like this baby born into the world. It was his new life. So in the one hand, it's talking about the resurrection. But in another place in Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says that the whole world, the whole creation, is groaning with birth pains. And like a whole world is being born, like Jesus was being raised from the dead. This is what it says in Romans 8. The creation waits. With eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. It's a powerful image to say all of history in the creation. You know, you include this last year of COVID, all the pain that we experience and the disconnection. We, think, we say, what is all this? And just all the, the wars and the violence and the heartbreak of human history throughout history. And you say, what is all this? The creation is under a curse. And there is this pain. But God promises there is a new life being born through Jesus. And that what happened to Jesus when his body was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, that was just a preview of what God is planning to do with the whole world and all of Jesus' people, that there is coming a time when there will be this new life born and all connection will be reestablished and we will be with God forever and sorrows will be no more. This hope is the foundation that lives inside of Christians. So no matter what sorrows, no matter what depressions come and the ups and downs of our spiritual life, this is what is underneath all of those that doesn't change in the Christian life. And you might say, what? How can, can we really believe that? That the whole creation would be freed from the curse and we would live in God's presence in eternal life with raised, healed bodies forever and ever? How could I ever believe that? Because it's already happened once. That's what it means is because it already happened once. God said what I did for Jesus in the past is going to happen for all of you in the future. And so that, that hope is the foundation for Christian joy. Now I know that each one of you has a different journey with regard to sorrow and joy and I can't give you a technique to necessarily move you from one to the other. But I can tell you about the path that you are on What do you need to know about the path of sorrow? Even if you wrestle with it your whole life, the Bible assures you it is only a little while. Even if it feels longer than that, trust God's word. And it comes from disconnection. Disconnection from his world and from people and ultimately from God and from the presence of Jesus. But that sorrow will be a part of giving birth to new life. And so what do you need to know about joy? Joy has its wild eyes open looking outward at God and his world looking especially to experience God answering prayers by his Holy Spirit. And above all, joy knows that there's an amazing future that God has prepared for us in Christ. And so we will wait for him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we... uh, Come before you as we reflect on uh, a topic that so many of us wrestle with so deeply of, of the sorrow of living under the curse in this world. And Father, I thank you that as your children are gathered here, you know each one of them so intimately. You know their particular sorrows, you know their particular little while that they have to face. You know their particular path of sorrow that they must walk. And so, Lord, um, I pray for each person here that you would assure them of your loving providence and that, Lord, the hope of, uh, of the reconnection of all things, the renewal of all things, would live inside of us that we might know endurance but also, Lord, that we would have joy now. Lord, we believe in it for the future, but I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would grant them relief, even in this life. And so we look to you in faith. In Christ's name, amen. We'll invite you to stand. And every week we respond.